0: Hey, this is Jeff. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join us at the table as we talk to another great leader about faith, church, and leadership. Welcome to The Leadership Drip. Hey,
1: everybody. Welcome back to The Leadership Drip, and uh, we have an exciting show today. I am, I think maybe for the first time on the podcast, actually flying solo, but not completely solo because I have a great friend with me, uh, Rich Villadas, who's on the show today. He is the pastor of New Life Fellowship in Queens, New York. Let's hear it for New York, all my people out there. Uh, he's the author of the book, Deeply Formed Life, which just most recently came out. Uh, it's a fantastic conversation, and that is what we're going to be focusing on today. So, Rich, welcome to the show, man.
0: Robert, so good to be here. I look forward to a good conversation.
1: Absolutely. Well, let's get first things first. So, you know, there we have a lot of people on the show here from either the Chicago area or the New York area, right? So like yeah. our friend Durso was on the show, like he's a New York guy, right? You're a New York guy. We've got we got all kinds of people. So it's always a conversation about pizza. Of course. <laughs> like you, you already knew what was coming. I know where this is going, yeah. <laughs> so, so are okay. I mean, are you going to step across the line? Do you enjoy a good Chicago style pizza or are you straight New York?
0: No, I enjoy it. I mean, I enjoy it, but priorities matter. Uh, and so, uh, I have no hate against it, but, um, New York through and through and you give me a New York slice, uh, any day of the week.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So that, now I've got to ask, uh, what's your, who, what's your favorite pizza in New York? Cause I mean, I've got, I've got to come back to New York at some point. It's been a while since I've been in the city and I need, I need a good New York pizza.
0: Yeah. So many places, uh, in Queens, there are two places, one place called Lillian's pizza, which, okay. uh, Ray Romano Uh, Used to live in Forest Hills, part of Queens, and his pictures are all over that pizzeria. Uh, There's a great place called Nick's Pizza, uh, which is in uh, another part in Forest Hills, Queens, which is phenomenal. And then uh, there's a a spot in Long Island called Geno's. And for me, at least, they have the best buffalo chicken slice ever eat it's phenomenal so, so you,
1: that, you yeah. even step outside of the box a little bit with the buffalo oh, yeah. slice now yeah. i'm a traditionalist like i judge most restaurants by classic dishes so if i go to an italian restaurant if you don't have good lasagna i'm not coming back yeah. right? <laughs> if you go i go to a pizza place you don't have good pepperoni pizza i'm yeah. not coming back i mean so i'm kind of kind of clean and simple like that but you're trying this buffalo sauce is kind of throwing me off a little bit
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, They have their regular sliced pizza as well, regular cheese slice, which is phenomenal. But that buffalo slice is out of this world.
1: Okay, okay. I'm going to take your word for it. I'm going to take your word for it. Well, that's the pizza conversation. So I guess I guess we'll get to the good stuff now, right? The good, the good stuff good the conversation. Hey, I, this, this book, and we'll get to the book here in a little bit. But I think, you know, for our listeners, I think it's really important for them to hear some of your story, which is just an incredible story of how you grew up as a kid in Brooklyn, um, you know, not really going to church other than with your grandparents, you know, when they took you, uh, those kinds of things. So, uh, but in your teen years, I mean, you, you really sort of had this family encounter with God, you know what I mean? So won't you kind of walk us through that experience a little bit and kind of tell us about that day.
0: Yeah, you know, as you mentioned, from time to time, I would go to a small uh, Pentecostal Spanish speaking church in Brooklyn with my grandparents, my parents were not Christian growing up. They were quite indifferent and apathetic to the things of church and Christianity, but because that Pentecostal church had three and four hour services, you get good childcare for those services there. So my parents were saying, go to that church, not the Catholic one, go to that one. <laughs> we need three and four hour services. We need a break. And so I would attend that church. And uh, by the time I was 12 or 13, Uh, Asked my parents if I can stop attending. They said yes, and then found myself back in there as a 17-year-old because I started dating an Assemblies of God uh, pastor's daughter, and so uh, that got me back in the church very quickly. (laughs) And uh, didn't need to pray about it. Uh, So I was like, he said, the only way you can date my daughters if you go to church. I was like, I'll be there. So went there for a few years. Uh, the relationship came to an end after a couple of years and in great teenage heartbreak, anxiety mode, found myself just heartbroken and needing some form of healing. And when I got home one August night in 1999, I uh, found out that my four younger siblings were at this church that I used to attend when I was a kid, which was strange because we never went to church as a family. Yeah. At all. And so there was some guest evangelist there. I decided I'm all broken up. Maybe I should go there as well. So I went to that church, some preacher got up and started preaching from Ezekiel 37, which, I mean, you just could read the passage. You don't even have to preach it. and Lives are going to be changed. And so he he preached on the Valley of dry bones and God breathing life. And essentially said, if you want this breath uh, of life, uh, come up and receive it. We want to pray for you. And my, somehow my parents ended up at the church. They followed me as, as I went into the church some 15 minutes later. So my parents were there, a number of family members were there. And one by one, we all received Christ that night, about 15 of us, uh, one night in this storefront church in, in Brooklyn. And so that's how my journey of following Christ began as a 19-year-old. And uh, here I am uh, 22 years later trying to follow Jesus uh, faithfully in the world.
1: Man, I love, I love that story. And I've heard that story before. I mean, when you were here at Lean, you spoke, you shared a little bit um, of it as well. And uh, I think it's just a great testimony to, to the family dynamics, which I think apply, you know, specifically towards this deeply formed life conversation. I do have sort of a funny story, a kind of a, a cultural sort of a collision story. Uh, uh, so where I pastored in Washington, D.C., there was also a uh, Spanish congregation that met there, we decided to have this really great, unified, multicultural service one Sunday, and all of us come together, and uh, I asked this um, this uh, Puerto Rican uh, Pentecostal preacher to come and share his testimony, because it was phenomenal, he was a gangbanger in Puerto Rico, like, with the prison, got saved, I mean, it was a phenomenal story, right? So he's like, yeah, I'd love to come and preach, right? So I asked him to come, he comes, and he speaks, And like two hours into his message, he says, this is no lie. He says, Pastor asked me to share my testimony, so I'm (laughs) going to share my testimony. I was like... All of us poor, you know, starving white people <laughs> in the congregation were just like, but but it was amazing. It, it truly yeah. was an amazing service, and I loved it. It was incredible.
0: You know, when we talk here, I mean, I'm Puerto Rican as well. You know, that 30 minutes—that's the preface to the prayer. You're, hey, so, uh, hey. I get it.
1: <laughs> oh man, that was great. So uh, another really cool sort of um facet to your journey is uh there's a guy that you know you obviously know way better than I do I've never actually had the personal privilege to meet him though I've read all of his stuff uh Peter Scazzaro um you know emotionally healthy spirituality emotionally healthy, uh, emotionally healthy leadership um just an incredible writer incredible thinker uh incredible theologian incredible pastor um obviously he's played a significant role in your life and your development, because you actually uh, succeeded him as pastor at his church. So a lot of things that we talk about on the show is the importance of this mentoring relationship, both yeah. the traditional sort of models conversations from the top down, but we also talk a lot about the reverse mentoring where we, where we are mentored from the bottom up, younger people mentoring us. So I would love to kind of hear a little bit more about uh, your and Pete's uh, kind of relationship, how that evolved and and how you uh, succeeded him in ministry?
0: Yeah, you know, when I got to New Life uh, twelve years ago, I was you know 20, 28 years old, and um, didn't have I didn't have a clue that he was going to be in a succession process. So I went to New Life just to be on the preaching team to oversee small group ministry, and about two years after getting there. Um, He let me know, hey, I'm in a succession plan. I'm like, I came here because of you. And he's saying, I'm about to step out of this senior pastor position. Would you like to go through a process with us? And so the first thing I learned from him is how deliberate and thorough and, um, and contemplative and prudent his leadership was, thinking ahead, uh, you know, considering all the various factors and variables that go into big leadership decisions, not rushing through. And so that's the first thing that I learned from him as a 28 year old, that there was a four year thorough process of succession and transition. And it was in that time where I started working very closely with him. Uh, I was leading behind the scenes staff meetings and starting to preach more. Uh, And learned from him that probably the greatest leadership lesson beyond just his own integrity and his own character was uh, the importance of holding on to particular values and leading from values, Mm -hmm. not expediency, uh, not efficiency, uh, not for the sake of just results, uh, but we're going to be driven by a particular set of values informed by the gospel and contextualize in our space in Queens. Uh, and it was in that place where those few years where I got to see up close uh, the challenges of leadership. Uh, it was a gift because, you know, as the lead pastor and senior pastor, uh, not everyone likes you all the time. And so, you know, I'd say most of the time, for the most part, I've received much more commendation and affirmation than I have criticism. But when criticism comes, it can hurt. And so I remember him uh, in the the waning years of just his uh, tenure as a senior pastor and as I was stepping in, that there were some people that wanted to address things with him. And he would say, hey, Rich, would you like to join me in these meetings just to sit on the side, be a fly on the wall and watch me engage these people? And I said, if they are fine with that, I'd love to do that. And there were a number of those conversations where I was just in the room as he was receiving, whether it was criticism, but the way he was receiving it from a non-anxious place, from a place of curiosity, from a place of empathy, from a place of wanting to really understand and then speak out, uh, whether it was his perspective or why he's making decisions the way he is, to be a part of that really, he modeled something for me about non-anxious presence and that leadership requires a non-anxious presence, especially in a world that's marked by depolarization and conflicts and disagreements. So uh, beyond just that lesson there, there's so many other lessons I'm happy to go into with Pete, but the importance of letting our values lead us, the importance of non-anxious presence, the importance of being prudent and thinking things through and considering the, the various uh, ways that are uh, possibilities of various decisions. Uh, I've tried to take that with me as I've been the lead pastor of new life over the past eight years.
1: Yeah. And I think those are such key, I mean, each one of those are probably books or dissertations in and of their own, right. Of course. I mean, so, and I think, um, you know, certainly you have been around enough circles and understand enough and have seen enough to know that um, succession plans are not necessarily um, the forte of good church leadership, right? It's not something that I think we have done uh, very well. And I think, I don't think that's out of some kind of egotistically driven sort of, you know, mode or dark place in the heart all the time. Maybe certainly in some cases it is, but I think it's just the lack of understanding and knowledge of how to do that. Well, why do you think that maybe, um, because we have a lot of uh, young adult leaders who are listening who are anxious to get started? Who are anxious to to step in and provide ideas and insights and innovations into local church ministry? And then you've got the the older generation, just for a lack of better terminology, just the older generation who are slower to adapt, slower to change. So, what is some of the the tension in the in the poor succession planning that we're seeing in in our churches today?
0: I, I think at the core of it and what we experience that new life is number one, a a team based approach to ministry and leadership. Um, Long before uh, the succession came into place, uh, Pete had uh, launched the preaching team to basically say, we're not just going to live off, our congregation is not going to live off of my sermons and my leadership. We need other voices here that our congregation can learn from. And so uh, he opened that up. Uh, Additionally, what made Succession possible was uh, we had a structure of sabbaticals every seven years and for four months. And so every seven years that came, he went on a four-month sabbatical. And that communicated a few things to the church. Number one, uh, we can exist without him. Now, do we lo- did we love him? Yeah. Do we, do we want him to be here? Absolutely. But again, uh, this church is built on Jesus Christ. This church is not built on this personality which is why, I mean, I had my first sabbatical two years ago after being seven years in the role. Uh, And so that was a a, a really significant aspect of it as well. So moving out of the personality-driven aspects of what leadership can be. uh, But I I think some of the uh, other areas that made it work was Pete's own self-awareness. He knew the difficulty of letting go. Now, he did something that was not... um, a a bit, not strange, but it's not typical in that he transitioned when he was 57 years old. So he's, you know, folks are usually in their 60s and 70s before pastors say, all right, I'm gonna transition out of this role. You know, he transitioned out of the role at about 56, 57. And so, um, and that was because the Lord was leading him to some other things and he wanted to be open to that. But uh, even though he willingly wanted to hand it over, He did some significant inner work, uh, recognizing the ways that he's so emotionally connected to this leadership role, to the power that he has. Not that it's a bad thing, but he recognized the power, the influence, what it meant to be the leader of this community. And so uh, I remember meeting with him throughout the course of the succession every week for a number of hours, and he would just talk about what it means to let go and uh, the work that he's been doing with his therapist. On letting go and what it means in the season. So part of it was just that self-awareness and the vision for the future. Uh, You know, recognizing there are younger leaders in our midst. How do we position those younger leaders well and appropriately for the sake of the future? So that was our context. I recognize different contexts are you know are different, but those are the undergirding principles uh, that helped us to have what I believe is a very successful transition.
1: So to this conversation then, and I think over the course of the podcast that we've done in the last year and a half, we've had some incredible conversations with incredible leaders. But I think uh, one of the major sort of themes that keep reoccurring when it comes to uh, young adults, leading young adults, engaging young adults in the local church, keeping young adults in, in the local church, is this conversation that you're talking about, which really is about the book. But it's also sort of been modeled for you through Pete's leadership is this conversation of self-awareness and the willingness to do the deep soul work um, that's required in order for you to get to those healthy spaces and places so you can make the kinds of decisions in leadership that are beneficial not only for you personally, but beneficial for the whole body. So there's been kind of this surge in recent years, Um, Biola, where I went. In California, they have a full spiritual formation discipleship program. Um, it's it's popping up in different conversations and circles in local churches. Uh, you can become now a professional spiritual formation discipleship counselor, right? There's there's all kinds of these new sort of spiritual formation conversations popping up, uh, but spiritual formation is obviously not a new concept because it's a biblical one, yeah. so um Maybe some things are obvious, maybe they aren't, maybe this is just a a stem from the mental health crisis we're all facing, especially in our Western American context. But what seems to you sort of the spiritual soil that's being toiled behind the scenes by God that's bringing these things back into light?
0: Yeah, I think some of it is uh, the social media is uh, making more obvious or making more clear some of our deficiencies uh in leadership and in character formation and so whether it's being seen in uh leading pastoral uh and church leaders having these falls from grace you know in the 80s and 90s someone would fall from grace uh, you know moral failure and you might read it in an article on christianity today and that was about it nowadays uh, it's all over the place it's going viral with a level of speed that we've never seen before and so because of this rapid change and this rapid accessibility that we have to technology and information, I think it's, it's accelerating and exposing the cracks of the ways that we're thinking about what it means to follow God in this world, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a leader. And so I see all these things as, yes, the Holy Spirit is allowing, is bringing something to the surface and inviting us into saying, into living a, you know what does it mean to live deeply formed what does it mean to live a life marked by character moving beyond efficiency moving beyond the various metrics Mm. uh that we have often used to define what success is and what we're finding is those metrics which is often uh bigger better larger um are not deep enough for the sake of our own sustainability and witness to christ so I think the formation, and, for, and formation very simply is it is that process of becoming like Jesus Christ. If you want to just make it as clear as day, this, I mean, this is Paul saying in Galatians, uh, "I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you." That's spiritual formation, That's right. the process of Jesus Christ being formed in us. But it's it's so easy to miss that emphasis in leadership and in pastoring and you know the, the work that we give ourselves to.
1: It's an interesting, and, and I think all of us are somewhat exhausted, not only with the pandemic itself, but with conversations about the pandemic. But the longer this kind of extends, and I know uh, New York, probably maybe even more than any other state in the country, uh, really suffered a heavy kind of toll as a result of the pandemic, which really obviously shifted things for you, local church ministry wise, because at the end of the day, you're a pastor, right you're in charge of a flock a congregation and and this is this is uh what you do primarily and so um these conversations about the pandemic though and we recently had um uh, sharon hottie miller on and she talked a lot about how they planted a church in the pandemic which is basically a church made of small groups right it's that's kind of the formation of the local church so for you guys uh there in queens and new york um how has the pandemic sort of either sharpened or reshapened some of your emphasis and your focus on this need for deep discipleship?
0: Hmm. Yeah. Initially, you know, we, we had some things in place like live stream before the pandemic uh, began. And so on some level, it was a pretty seamless transition for us to say, okay, Sundays are going to be very different now. Um, And so that's been, the biggest challenge for us has been probably on what's happening on Sundays, yeah. keeping a level of engagement, keeping a level of participation, a sense that we're in this together, especially when we're watching from our living rooms or our bedrooms or from the kitchen or from, uh, you know, park outside and in, in, in the street, whatever it is. Uh, so that's been one of the biggest points of challenge and my greatest source of anxiety as a pastor because I don't, Sunday was a space to. Have little check-ins. I, I see someone walking in the lobby before they head out. I'm able to say, "Hey, are you still looking for a job? Hey, how's your daughter doing? Hey, you know, are you are you feeling better?" Those conversations are not ha- being had anymore. So that's been pretty challenging. But we did make a significant and um, I, I think an intentional shift to take all of our community life in terms of small groups and utilize platforms like Zoom. And we did it pretty early and invited people into it. And I think for us, people responded very quickly because they were craving community and craving just some form of connection. Uh, We also took our uh, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course that we do. Uh, We have two courses on Emotionally Healthy Spirituality and Emotionally Healthy Relationships. And we decided just to put it all on Zoom as well. And what we've discovered is because at the end of the day, when you finish the church meeting, you're, a- you're able just to roll into bed and, and go to sleep. And what we've yeah. discovered is we've had the, the best amount of attendance and engagement that we've ever had in any of these courses. And so we, we made some shifts pretty early. Now, is it ideal? No. Uh, you know, the, the challenge of Zoom and all that is you can't have these polycentric conversations happening simultaneously. It's often, you know, you better mute yourself and let somebody else talk. Uh, and so we miss that. At the same time, there is a lot of formation and, uh, and discipleship that can happen on these platforms. And so for us, is it ideal? Definitely not. Uh, but I do sense the spirit leading us to continue to deepen this hybridity of ministry in this particular, you know, cultural moment that we find ourselves in.
1: That's yeah, and that's really good. And I think I think those some of those conversations are just continuing echoes, as well. Now, from a leadership perspective, I'm I'm also very curious, um, you know, about uh, staff and volunteer engagement and things like that. Because as a leader, I'm going to be be a, a bit transparent here. My personality is, um, the pandemic has has been difficult for me because I'm a very social person. Yeah. Right. And so, so I have found myself literally emotionally all over the map. Like there are days where I'm like deep into God and I'm journaling and I'm writing and I'm praying and I'm reading. And then there are days that I'm like, I don't want to get out of bed. You know, yeah. I'm wearing Crocs and socks for three straight days. I mean, it's, it's, it's a disaster, right? So, so how have you from a leadership perspective being able to keep yourself personally and your teams kind of motivated and engaged and, and, um, you know really kind of healthily processing the, the changes.
0: you know part of part of what we've done I think and this comes out of the culture that I stepped into that Pete had began, begun to plant and cultivate and my job has been to water that particular culture because at the beginning of the pandemic in March there was a lot of talk of we can still push forward we can sp- still be the church we can still take that mountain. And in our context, what we were hearing, I think, from what we learned in, you know, through Pete and just the kind of monastic approach that we wanted to take at new life is actually we probably need to slow down. Actually, we probably need to give ourselves a lot of grace. Actually, we probably need to not take that mountain and actually take a nap. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and so what we what we've discovered. And that doesn't mean that it hasn't been easy. I mean, the, the first few weeks, I was so disoriented with what was happening. I was having nightmares. I was mm-hmm. waking up middle of the night. You know, um, you, know, you know, many people were dying in Queens. We were hearing yeah. the, the ambulance pass by us. It felt like uh, 20 times a day, just nonstop felt yeah. the sirens, because there's a hospital, Elmhurst Hospital, which was at that time, the epicenter of the pandemic in the United States. That's a mile and a half from where we live. Uh, and so we were hearing it nonstop. I was having uh, nightmares and such. And in, in that, I didn't have the margin to say, let's take the next mountain. For me, I realized I better take another nap. I better talk to my therapist. I better uh, get with some pastors. And I, one of the things that I did was, uh, even before the pandemic, I knew I needed three other pastor friends in a very similar space to meet with for 90 minutes once a month. We're in our third year doing it. And I just realized we better we better not skip that meeting on our calendar because we need a space to confess. We need a space to pray for one another. So for me, I think the temptation around us was keep pushing, take the mountain. Uh, but I think we've learned, no, what we need is a Sabbath. What we need is to pause. What we need to is to... Uh, try to understand the implications of what's happening before us. So, and even with that, there are good days and there are bad days. So yeah, I'm with you.
1: Well, I don't know if you got to the Crocs and socks phase, but it was <laughs> it was it was scary, right? So, no, I appreciate <laughs> you showing that. But, but yeah. So, okay. So let's jump back towards uh, towards the book a little bit. Again, it just recently came out a few months ago, and it's called the Deeply Formed Life. And um, for some of our listeners, they, they may be kind of new to the conversations of formation or discipleship, you know, these, these heavier, more, um, maybe even, gosh, slightly more academic terms, right? We don't always use these kinds of terms in church. Yeah. Maybe we should be, um, but uh, you've been in a good Pentecostal service and. Right, so so we know that's what right. that's like. Right? That's exactly right. <laughs> but anyway, so let's talk about deeply formed life. Kind of, kind of, give us sort of the the uh, what God birthed in you, that burden, and sort of how it evolved and and where where it is now.
0: Yeah, the deeply formed life came out of really pastoral concern uh, and a, a, what I believe was a a ambitious reframing of what spiritual formation is for our generation. And um, the five values that I write about are contemplative rhythms, racial reconciliation, interior examination, sexual wholeness, and missional presence. What many people don't know is those are the five values of our congregation, Mm -hmm. although we use different language. We call it monastic, multiracial, emotional health, marriage to Christ, and missional. What I wanted to do was try to find language that was a bit accessible to people outside of our context. And because our context is so diverse, over 75 nations represented, uh, multi-generational, multi-class, international congregation, I thought whatever we wrestle with here and write about here is probably gonna have an impact outside of our context because of how diverse our community is. But I wrote it because uh, I was having many conversations in the lobby after church or after I teach a class and people saying, Can you tell me more about ways to move forward with race? Or can you tell me more about how spirituality and sexuality converge? Can you tell me more about various practices of justice or contemplation? And so much like Eugene Peterson, when he translated the message, it came out of pastoral concern. He wanted his people to understand what Paul was saying in the book of Galatians. So he decided to write accessible language for his people because he wanted to be a good pastor to them. For me, same thing. It was, I want to be a good pastor to the people that God has entrusted me to serve. I want to translate some of these things, make it accessible, offer theology, and at the same time, uh, humbly but ambitiously say to the church around us, hey, I think uh, this might be a new framework for us to think through what it means to follow Jesus in this particular generation and cultural moment. So, But that was the impetus, essentially, started local but with a sense that this can go beyond just our local context.
1: Yeah, and I just want to underscore, I think, I think the message um, of the book is so, so timely. Uh, these, these very intense conversations that are wrapped in so many different cultural layers and, and confusions, and it's, it's really important for us to be able to unpack them and to think through them and to pray through them and to rest in them in the tension, through the tension, all of these things. So the, the book itself is is so timely. One of, one of the things you say in this book, in which I thought was just a great quote, is, what good are the supernatural changes we make if we neglect the deep work God wants to do inside of us? And I think on a college campus, obviously, um, coming from a, a Pentecostal denominational heritage and background here at Lee, um, we have done a really, really good job of emphasizing and uh, I want to say hyper-focusing, but certainly, um, you know, relishing in this supernatural work of God, which is true, which is legitimate, which we yeah. affirm and we, we're in agreement with, right? God does supernatural things, but we have as Pentecostals, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit more, not necessarily done the greatest job at the deep stuff, yeah, like the those kinds of things. So Um, I love the quote. So maybe, maybe you can just unpack that for a second.
0: Yeah. When I think about formation, discipleship, following Jesus in this world, I've been impacted by multiple streams and traditions of Christian faith. Right. I think every stream has their, their gift and they have their gap, their gift and their shadow side. Mm -hmm. And uh, the three particular streams that I've been impacted by have been the evangelical, Pentecostal and kind of like the mainline progressive traditions. Like I've been in many of those spaces and I have found that in the evangelical tradition, the emphasis is often on right thinking in the Pentecostal charismatic tradition. It's often the emphasis is on right experiences. Mm -hmm. And in the progressive kind of mainline tradition, it's often right action, right? Justice in the world and all that. And what I was thinking as I was wrestling with the ways that I've been formed and shaped, what, what are the gifts that all these tradi- traditions offer? And then what are the gaps that they have as well? And which e- with each of these traditions, The major gap or a major gap has been this lack of interiority,
1: Mm.
0: this lack of integration, this lack of integrity. And by integrity, what I mean is not living something perfectly, but wrestling with something faithfully. That's integrity for me. Uh, And so whether it's right thinking, right experiences, right action, I want all that. At the same time, I want to give Christ access to the entirety of my being so that I am addressing matters of race from a deeper place, so that I'm addressing matters of mission and evangelism from a deeper place, so that I'm addressing matters of sexuality from a more thoughtful, reflective, contemplative, integrated place. And uh, we know how it is. It's very easy to split ourselves, the outside from the inside. The deeply formed life is not about ignoring the ways we give ourselves to the world or ignoring the experiences that the spirit longs to give us and encounter us with, but it is about that integration, that intersection, that integrity, that congruence that I believe uh, the Lord is calling us into because Christ wants to impact every facet of our being.
1: And I think, yeah, I mean, that's so critical because the integration conversation in and of itself, um, maybe even, maybe even, especially on college campuses is a challenging conversation because Uh we are we are, we, we are not the local church, right? That is, that is not our MO, even though we have some commonalities and some, and some uh, crossover sort of expressions that we, would, we say are similar, for example, chapel. But the thing is, the, the integration piece is so critical to have because uh, a nursing student or a business student or a, a math major still needs to know what faith integration looked like, how, you know, what is God saying through the teaching of math? Yep. What is God saying through the, through the practice of, of nursing or, or medical practice in general, right? So uh, this faith integration piece, which is required to do that deep, intrinsic um, uh, soul work in order for us to really grasp it and to understand it and to live it, uh, is largely missing, not only from the religious sort of Christian church conversation, but also from the academic curricular Focus, I think, in a lot of our Christian universities, and I know you speak on campuses and you teach classes. So, is this something that you're seeing as well?
0: I, you know, absolutely. And I think the invitation that Jesus gives us is one that is not just uh, people here deeply formed life, and they think uh, navel gazing. They think, all right, he's going to be stuck within. You know, I'm going to be trapped within myself and absor- absorb self absorbed myself. Mm-hmm. When really it is about, yes, looking within and interiority, but that word as well, that integration, uh, how do I now uh, incorporate and show the layers of intersection with what I give myself to, whether it is my vocation, which is why on the chapter that I write on missional presence, uh, you know, at New Life, we don't use the phrase full-time ministry like we don't use the phrase like someone says i can't wait to quit my job so i can go into full-time ministry mm-hmm. we don't that's that language is banned at new life <laughs> and, and, and sometimes people still use it and we go yeah. right, right, right. but in our context everyone is in full-time ministry right. whether you're a barber whether you're a nurse whether you're a, a, a firefighter police officer everyone is in full-time ministry uh in service to jesus into the world around them And it is that intersection, that there is no secular sacred divide, that Christ is Lord over everything and invites us uh, to submit all of our lives and offer the work of our hands, the the, the attitude of our hearts to him. And I've noticed that compartmentalization, really it's it's a formational compartmentalization Mm -hmm. that impacts whether the campus or the church that I'm trying to resist, to say, no, it all belongs to God, it all belongs to Jesus. Uh, there is no s- secular spiritual divide in the ways that we typically understand that.
1: Yeah. Um, you also quote um, one of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, um, in your book. And uh, I, I think this, this particular quote is, is fantastic, uh, where he says, it is only when we slow down our lives that we actually catch up with God. Love that. And uh, this college campus that we're on and, and what the pressures are that these students are facing. I mean, I cannot tell you how many students I have coming to my office. There, there are two major counseling conversations I have. The first one is typically some sort of sexual identity or sexual confusion kind of conversation on the regular, right? That's, that's, a, that's a big one. Um, the second one is a vocational discipleship conversation um, about what does it mean to be called? How am I called? Am I called? Can I honor God by being a healthcare administration worker? Is that ministry? I mean, these kind of these vocational conversations. And I love uh, what N.T. Wright says, which you obviously quote, is that when we actually slow down, we, we actually catch up with what God is doing. And I think this, this conversation of uh, flourishing, maybe even in the midst of exile, which is a lot of the, the stuff that I'm reading from N.T. Wright right now is on exile this flourishing, this repentance, this redemption, this restoration that comes from slowing down. um, I think that's such an important conversation to have, especially on a college campus.
0: The the pace that we live, whether on the campus or in the city, is unrelenting. And this is not just a New York City thing. Uh, This is, you know, New York City might be where uh, the original gene or whatever, where it started, but this is not just a Queens, New York City thing. This is infecting everyone around the world. And that, that quote from N.T. Wright came out of um, a, a video talking about slowness. And he referred to this Japanese theologian named Kosuke Koyama, who mm. wrote a book called The Three Mile an Hour God. And the emphasis was that we need to learn how to walk at God's pace if we're going to uh, be able to commune with God. And his argument was, how fast does God walk? And he said three miles an hour, because that's the average uh, pace of a human being as they're walking, three miles an hour. And so um, he said, that's the pace that God, and so so Wright picks up on that and says, well, we better slow down if we want to catch up to God. Good paradoxical thinking there. Uh, but I think he's Right. Uh, it is only when we're able to do that work of slowing down our outer pace, so that we can pay attention to our inner space and how the Holy Spirit is looking to speak to us and have us discern. I I, I don't know how we're going to live wise, uh, spirit-filled, uh, prudent lives without that level of slowing down. We see it in Jesus. We see it throughout the Scriptures of space is needed for solitude and silence and prayerfulness. We cannot afford to pray as we're going from one class to the next. We can't afford to pray as we're walking to work. Uh, our souls are desperately need unhurried, uh, unfrenzied space to commune with God. And so that's the essence of what Wright is saying. If we're gonna catch up to God, we need to learn to slow down And it is a crucifixion to do it, because I'm thinking, look at everything I'm not getting done. Look at everything that's on my to-do list. Uh, And so it is a crucifixion. uh, But on the other side of that crucifixion of slowing down, I do believe there's resurrection waiting for us, uh, because the life of God can be infused in us in an unhurried, unfrenzied space.
1: I think it's an interesting, interesting sort of perspective to take, because whether it's the Uh, the tyranny of the urgent or a lie from the enemy himself, whatever your particular Mm -hmm. uh, way you want to blame it, blame it. Uh, The fear is the fear, which that ought to be your first indicator right there that you're on the wrong path, right? The fear is if we don't address quickly, or if we don't speak loudly now, or if we don't engage, you know, uh, and I think maybe this even played out very, very well from our Uh, in in negative components certainly but in the in this previous election and the the dynamics that that were associated with that right but i think the the fear is if we don't take charge then we lose ground but in actuality when we're talking in the kingdom and we're talking about in the spiritual economy of things it's in the slowing down that we actually make greater strides have greater impact um, do greater things for Jesus. Thus, Ezekiel chapter 37 is what you were talking about earlier. It's, yeah. um, you know, uh, Jeremiah chapter 29, not just verse 11, right. all the other stuff that goes into Jeremiah 29, right? All of those things as well. And so um, the slowing down piece then, how do we do that um, against the grain of culture that just demands that we speak mm-hmm. or die?
0: I think part, what what I've learned about this which goes against American sensibilities of individualism is in order to slow down in a way that is sustainable and in a way that's intentional, it does require a particular culture mm. that we are a part of. Uh, now, any, now, anyone could just take it on themselves and say, I'm gonna slow down. I'm gonna spend a little more time in prayers, a little more time journaling, a little more time reflecting on the decisions that I'm making analyzing the particular conundrum of this social political situation we find ourselves in uh, and they, can, they might make progress but I've discovered especially being part of a local church that what enables this slowing down is that I'm part of a larger body in which we are holding one another accountable uh, so for example Every Wednesday, every third Wednesday of the month, we have a pastoral day alone with God. I'll just talk from our pastoral perspective. Um, Now, this was put in uh, before I became the lead pastor. I continued it. So every every third Wednesday, uh, especially pre-pandemic, don't come into the church office. There are no meetings. Your task alone as a pastor is to spend eight hours at a park, at a beach, at a coffee shop, Praying, reading, reflecting, uh, and then the last couple of hours just planning for the you know for the following month and such. Do you know it is so much easier to come into the office uh, and send out emails than to do that because after two hours people are thinking, all right, I prayed, and I what else is there to do, you know? And what we said is no, stick with it do not send out emails do not work on a sermon uh this is your time to slow down to be with god now i'm the one who has really continued to deepen this value and yet when that third wednesday comes i'm very tempted to go without it now i'm the one who's like the the cheerleader of it hey guys we got to do it but i'm in, in, in you know regularly tempted to go without it but because i know we're doing it as a community because I know where this is the kind of culture we've established. I need that surrounding culture and that surrounding community to help me to say yes to those particular rhythms. And so, yes, I mean uh, by all means, if someone has the discipline, I mean, I think you should do it, but I think the larger aspect, we need entire churches and communities and cultures, which normalize slowing down, which normalizes this kind of, contemplative rhythms, uh, because apart from that, the world is just too seductive in its pace mm. and in its values uh, for us. Uh, and so we, we just need a larger community. This is what the monastic community has learned over the many centuries, that to be a monk is not just to be have a, a life with God alone, we need to be, be part of a larger community that's holding on to these rhythms and keeping us grounded together.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Uh, folks, the, the book is called The Deeply Formed Life. And Rich, bro, I wish we had like three hours just to unpack <laughs> some of this stuff. It's such it's such good conversation and such good material. Um, but it's been a joy to have you on the show. And man, I do hope we could see you back here on campus at yeah. Lee University at some point. I know we would love to have you. But um, uh, thank you again so much. And as we love to say here, uh, oh, wait, I almost forgot the lead, the last question. like jeff would have annihilated me this is embarrassing hey we got one more question we got one more question okay it's a question we ask everybody on the show and i almost forgot it so here's the question what is one lesson you learned in college that took place outside of the classroom
0: one lesson that i learned in college
1: that took place outside of the classroom
0: oh that's uh i'll try to i'll I'll try to capture this in a nutshell um I, i learned that god speaks Uh, in uh, in very clear ways in this moment in college that people are listening to. Uh, When I was 21, 22 years old, I was in a leadership and administration class. And we were talking about styles of leadership. Mm -hmm. And I never forgot where I was sitting when the professor said, one style of leadership is taking what someone has kind of established and building on it and creating larger systems and helping to flourish. And the image was Paul planted Apollos watered. So it was like that Apollos watered thing. God spoke to me so deep in my soul. I saw that's who I am. While all my other friends were planting churches, I knew I'm not called to plant the church. Mm. This is who I am. And so I learned that lesson about myself. And it was until that moment came when I was asked to uh, take over for Pete at New Life Fellowship Church that I never forgot how God speaks to us at that age. And so for those listening who are in college, the Lord gives dreams and visions. The Lord speaks prophetically. And I think there's some things that are, uh, you know, some of it can be attributed to our own hubris and ego, like Joseph and his naivete in the book of Genesis, where, you know, all you are going to bow at me. And it was like, brother, that wasn't the right time to say that. Uh, and, and some of that is in us, but at the same time, the Lord speaks as well and gives us dreams and visions. And so I learned, uh, hold on to those words that the Lord speaks because you're going to need them at some other point in your life.
1: That's awesome. Hey, now I can officially end the show. This is what happens when you leave me by myself. Like my ADD goes off the charts and I forget things. So it's all good. Rich man. Again, it's been a joy to have you on the show. And, uh, as we do say here at the leadership drip, bro, you've always got a seat at the table.
0: Thank you so much. I really
1: appreciate it. Hey, friends, thanks for listening to this episode of The Leadership Drip. We loved having you at the table for this conversation. Would you do us a favor and comment, rate, subscribe, and share on your social media? That way we can get this content to other great leaders. And stay connected with us on Instagram at The Leadership Drip and on Twitter at Leadership Drip. And remember, you have a seat at the table.